Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Do you know someone who is intersex? Well, if you know at least 60 people, the answer is probably yes. According to the Intersex Society of North America, quote, Intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definition of female or male. For example, a person might be born appearing to be female on the outside, but having mostly male typical anatomy on the inside. Or a person might be born with genitals that seem to be in between the usual male or female types. Unquote. So that's the definition of intersex, and it's a pretty broad definition. And that's because there's a lot of different kinds of traits that define people as intersex. There's something like 30 different intersex traits. It depends on things like people's chromosomal patterns, like do they have a Y chromosome, their reproductive organs, their genitalia, and or their hormone levels. Now, a researcher at Brown University estimates that 1.7% of the population is intersex, and that calculates out to be 1 in 60. That's why I say, if you know 60 people, you probably know someone who is intersex. Well, the Smithsonian Channel recently released a documentary about a hero of the American Revolution who is very likely intersex. The research was done by Virginia Hutton Easterbrook, who's an anthropologist at Georgia Southern University, and Megan Moore, who's an anthropologist at Eastern Michigan University. And I don't think they've formally published their research yet, but it's such an interesting story, I would like to tell you more about it. And following this story, there's another contemporary story I wanted to tell you about, which involves an intersex athlete who is now not going to be allowed to compete anymore. But to get back to the American Revolution... The historical character we are talking about is Casimir Pulowski. Casimir Pulowski was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1745. He was baptized as a boy. He was involved in the military fight against the Russian domination of Poland. But when that uprising failed, he had to leave Poland. First, he went to Paris, which is where he met Benjamin Franklin. Franklin basically recruited Pulowski to come help the American colonies in their effort to become independent of Britain. Pulowski was made a general in the American Revolution, and he was an excellent horseman, so was assigned to the cavalry. He was tremendously helpful to George Washington and instituted some important changes to the cavalry in terms of discipline and tactics. Apparently, he was very demanding of his soldiers, and that was made even more difficult because Pulowski barely spoke English. But because of the changes he made, Casimir Pulowski is now referred to as the father of the American cavalry. Pulowski was eventually assigned the southern front of the American Revolution, and he was very important during the siege of Savannah, Georgia. In 1779, 
while rallying the French forces who were in retreat, he was struck by enemy grape shot and died two days later. He was only 34 years old when he died. Now, there were stories that Pulaski was buried at sea, while there are other stories that he was buried near Savannah, Georgia. But then in the mid-1800s, those remains in Savannah were dug up and supposedly reburied at a monument in Savannah that was built in his honor. But don't forget there is a story about him being buried at sea, and so there is this controversy about, are these bones really Pulaski's bones? And so they exhumed his remains back in 1996, and over the period of some eight years, they examined the skeletal remains. And his remains were consistent with Pulaski's age, His wounds and his bone defects were consistent with what was known about him. The researchers tried to extract intact DNA from the bones, but they had trouble analyzing it. It had just been sitting around too long. But they saved that DNA in the hopes that maybe DNA analysis technology would improve in the future. And wouldn't you know it, it did. In recent years, they've gone back and examined his mitochondrial DNA. Now, the DNA that occurs in our mitochondria is smaller and circular, and so it's better preserved than our larger linear chromosomes, and that DNA analysis on the mitochondria actually worked. Now, mitochondrial DNA is inherited maternally in people, which means that it's followed through the female members of a family. So the mitochondrial DNA in your body is from your mother, and she got that from her mother, your grandmother, and your grandmother got it from your great-grandmother. Well, Casimir Pulaski never married, and he did not have children of his own. But they did find a match between him and his grandniece, who had been buried in Poland more than a 100 years ago. And this showed that, indeed, it was Casimir Pulaski who was buried at this site in Savannah. They really weren't quite sure of that at the time because he had some bone structure indicative that it was a female, not a male. He had facial hair, he had a mustache, and he had a slightly receding hairline like men often get, but his pelvic bone was more similar to a female's pelvic bone. Women generally have a wider, less shallow pelvis compared to men. This is for carrying the fetus. And apparently there's a notch in the fan-shaped pelvis bone that is noticeably larger in females than males. Apparently, Pulaski had these female characteristics. He did have a delicate facial structure, which you can almost see in the drawings that were made of him during his life. The researchers involved in this study concluded from all of this that Casimir Pulaski was intersex. For the longest time, researchers just couldn't figure out the identity of the purported Pulaski remains because they seemed female, whereas Pulaski was known to live the life of a man. But it turns out that he just didn't fit society's binary definition of what males and females are. He was intersex. I found an interview in the New York Times, April 7, 2019, with Kimberly Cecilman. She is director of Interact which is an advocacy organization for intersex children. And she said that Pulaski's life showed what can happen when intersex people are allowed to live as they were born without surgical intervention. Ms. Cecilman says that the discovery highlights the intersex community's fight against invisibility. 
She says that people don't realize or admit that they are intersex, or if they or their parents recognize it, a lot of times it's erased by surgery. Cieselman said in this New York Times article, quote, Just imagine if Casimir Pulaski was born today. He may have been raised as a girl, she said, making it unlikely that he would have joined the military or helped Washington. Arguably, if urologists had tried to fix Pulaski's body, in quotes, the U.S. might still be a British colony. Okay, so that's the first story about intersex. Second story, sports. Okay, here's a sports question for you. Track and field. Now, the 200-meter sprint is halfway around the standard track that you see at high schools and colleges. So if the world's fastest man, like a Usain Bolt, can run the 200 meter in 19.3 seconds, how long do you think it'll take the world's fastest woman to run that same distance? More than 19.3 seconds? Less? About the same? Well, the world's record for a woman in the 200 meter is held by Florence Griffith Joyner, who ran it back in 1988 in 21.3 seconds. That's a full two seconds slower than Usain Bolt. Now, experts put forth several reasons for why the fastest men generally outrun the fastest women. Men have larger hearts, 20 to 25 percent larger, so they could pump more oxygenated blood to their muscles. Women have to carry 5 to 10 percent more body fat, which they have for childbearing. This adds extra weight to carry relative to the muscles that the body has. Women are apparently more susceptible to injuries partly having to do with the higher estrogen levels that they have, and partly due to having a wider pelvis. But another important reason is that men have more testosterone in their bodies, and testosterone, the male hormone, stimulates muscle development. Testosterone also increases the concentration of red blood cells and hemoglobin, which are both important for carrying oxygen through the body. Male blood can carry something like 11% more oxygen than female blood. Well, can you imagine what would happen if there was a female athlete who was really good at running anyway, but she has really high levels of testosterone? She would probably be a really fast runner. Well, would that be fair? Do you think she should be able to compete with other women in races? Should she be prevented from competitions with women? Does she have an unfair advantage? Well, the International Association for Athletics Federation, the IAAF, just decided this for you. They just announced a decision about a South African woman who has exceedingly high but natural levels of testosterone in her blood. She loves running. She's been training as a runner her whole life, and she is fast. The athlete I'm talking about is Castor Simania. And in the 2016 Summer Olympic Games, she won two gold medals in track, and she ran the fifth fastest time for the 800 meter in the entire history of the women's Olympic competition. I'll try to find a short clip of one of her races and put it on our Facebook page so you can check it out. But the problem is that Castor Semania is hyperandrogenic, meaning that her body produces more testosterone hormone, the male hormone, than most women do. And the IAAF just announced on May 8, 2019, that hyperandrogenism in women is cause for disqualification in many track events. 
This is a big deal because the IAAF is the final arbiter on big-time track and field competitions like in the Olympics, etc. So she's not going to be able to run in a lot of races. The IAAF has decided to disqualify women who have male-like levels of testosterone from competing against other women in the track events that involve running from 400 meters up to a mile. There are several kinds of women that might fit into this disqualification category if they have a Y chromosome, the male chromosome, which women don't usually have, if they have testes but no ovaries, if their circulating testosterone level is more similar to a male's rather than lower like it is in most females. So this basically means that Castor Semania is not going to be able to run competitively in the races that she usually runs in. The International Association for Athletics Federation is saying that they are doing this for the sake of the other female competitors. They are saying that they are doing this out of fairness to the rest of the female athletes who have more average female levels of testosterone, which are relatively low compared to male. There doesn't appear to be many options for athletes like Castor Samania now. She could take birth control pills to up her estrogen levels, which apparently would help. She could get injected with a compound that removes testosterone from her body, or she could surgically remove any testes that she might have that's making this natural testosterone. But what Castor has decided to do is simply run races that are shorter or longer than the race length that the IAAF is now going to let her run. In other words, she'll just run races that are not under this disqualification guideline. Now, you might be thinking, why can't she just compete with men if her testosterone levels are that of a man? But the problem with that is that she would lose every race. Her racing times now are near the top of the record times for women, but she would be a full two seconds behind the record times for men on the 400 meter. Two seconds, that's a lot in a sprint. So she's at the top of the list of female runners, but that extra testosterone isn't that much of a boost that she'd be able to do really well in a race among men. What's provocative about this decision by the IAAF is that they are essentially defining a female by the amount of testosterone in their bodies. Is a woman just someone who has lower testosterone levels? That sure seems like an oversimplification of how you go about defining gender. I'm no expert, certainly, but it seems like our society is going through a period now where we are reevaluating what it means to be male or female and breaking it down to just how much testosterone there is. That seems way oversimplistic. But I can also see the perspective of the other women runners. They're just sort of being left behind. They don't have that high level of testosterone. What's fair to them? Another issue about this case is that it is generally thought that the IAAF is doing this because of Castor Semania, and Semania is a black woman. So is there bias here? Would this be such a big issue if it was a white woman involved? Now, you might be wondering, what's causing Castor Semania's high levels of testosterone? Castor Semania has had a gender test, but the results have not been released to the public for privacy reasons. Now, I did find an article in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology from 2015 that says that most cases of hyperandrogenism is due to having what's called the 46XY disorder, 
That means that the women have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome like men do instead of just the two X chromosomes that women usually have. They can have rudimentary testes. They can have an underdeveloped uterus. But another cause of hyperandrogenism is polycystic ovary syndrome, where there are multiple cysts that develop in the ovary, and that prevents the development of eggs, it prevents menstruation, and the people do end up having high levels of testosterone. Now, this 2015 Journal of Clinical Endocrinology paper I'm mentioning, they have authors from France, the United States, and Sweden. A quote from that paper is, quote, Biological parameters of sex are not neatly divided into two categories in the real world. Yet sports events are allowing women the chance at athletic victories that they would most likely not enjoy if genders were mixed in sports. Thus, quoting from the paper again, thus drawing a line at any point on such a complex and fraught continuum will always be an invitation for criticism. In events where androgenization provides a powerful advantage, women competing against women with a degree of hyperandrogenism that gives them a male physiology are likely to be at a disadvantage tantamount to competing in the male category, unquote. That's basically the attitude that the IAAF is taking. I found an interesting opinion piece in The Nation magazine from May 2nd, 2019. It was written by Dave Zirin. And it's quite critical of this IAF decision. Check out our Facebook page, and I'll try to provide a link to this article. Zirin argues that banning women who happen to have high testosterone levels is like banning a particularly tall basketball player because they're too tall, or a swimmer because they have extra long arms. He quotes an author at Yale University who just wrote a book about testosterone. The author's name is Katrina Karkazis. And Carcassus says that this decision, quote, endorses discrimination against women in sport and allows sports governing bodies to require medically unnecessary interventions for continued eligibility, thus violating women's bodily autonomy and integrity. This neither protects nor benefits women's sports, unquote. Later, Katrina Carcassus says, quote, my fear is that it will foster the already circulating erroneous representations about the science of sex biology, intersex, and the relationship between testosterone and athleticism, unquote. Well, I don't have a strong opinion about this myself. I do have a lot of questions. I'm a botanist, so this is not really my specialty. But I'd like to know, is there a biochemical definition of gender? Can gender be determined by just looking at anatomy? Would looking at genetics be helpful, and not just the X and Y chromosomes, but the other gender-affecting genes, too? Because, for instance, the genes for making testosterone are encoded by chromosomes other than the Y chromosome, the male chromosome. And then I wonder what the role of epigenetics plays. We've discussed epigenetics on this radio show before. Epigenetics. That's a mechanism for affecting our gene expression by what we experience and the things we're exposed to during our life. But the role of genetics, biochemistry, molecular biology in determining and modifying gender, that's a pretty interesting topic, which I'm sure it will be explored in more depth in the future. I realize that athletics is important to a lot of people. It's not really important to me. But it'll be interesting to see how people respond to this controversy. 
That article in The Nation finishes with a quote by Castor Semania herself. Castor said, quote, I know that the IAAF's regulations have always targeted me specifically. For a decade, the IAAF has tried to slow me down, but this has actually made me stronger. This decision will not hold me back. I will once again rise above and continue to inspire young women and athletes in South Africa and around the world, unquote. Castor also tweeted, quote, They laugh at me because I'm different, but I laugh at them because they're the same. currently listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. More bad news about whales. On our April 8, 2019 show, we reported on the four dead whales that were found washed ashore with large amounts of ingested plastic. Well, now there's a report coming from the New York Times that the government of Russia just seized 97 whales that have been held captive by private companies in Russia for sale to Chinese marine parks. They're mostly beluga and orca whales. They're mostly young and they could be worth millions of dollars when sold. A beluga whale can sell for $150,000, and an orca goes for up to $3.5 million. Russia typically sells about four whales a year to China, but this cache of 97 whales was surprising to government officials, and it is illegal there. So the Russian government has now contracted with a couple of different whale experts to come up with a plan on how to manage the release of these whales back into the ocean. One of the experts is Jean-Michel Cousteau, the son of famous oceanographer Jacques Cousteau. The plan is to examine the health status of each whale and release them in waters as close as possible to the point of capture. Some of the captive whales might be released in groups, It's hoped that the young whales might be able to reunite with their family or at least be around older whales that can teach them what they need to survive. Let's hope for the successful release of all these whales. and Let's hope we see an end to this illegal trafficking of live whales. Recycling. I hope you heard our show from March 25th, 2019. We had a guest commentator, Dr. Kate Belinsky, discuss recycling of things like plastic, glass, paper, cardboard, etc. Check out our March 25th episode to hear about how, although it might help you feel good when you recycle a household item, we really don't know anymore where those recycled items are actually going. Well, I wanted to update you about some news coming out of Lexington, Kentucky this month. 
Lexington is no longer going to recycle paper. City officials just told residents to start putting newspapers, office paper, magazines, cereal boxes, etc. into the trash instead of the recycling bins. The reason? Well, Kate Belinsky explained it, but it's because China has banned imports of paper and mixed plastic. They did that in July of 2017. This is after decades of accepting our trash, uh, our recyclables. The reason? They're concerned about contamination of this recyclable material. They are tired of polluting their land and water with our contaminated recycled material. And they are concerned about health risks to their workers. Another reason that China isn't taking our trash anymore is that as Chinese citizens are becoming wealthier, they are producing their own trash in larger amounts. And so they have their own stuff to recycle now. Then in April 2018, China stopped accepting a lot of scrap metals. Things like stainless steel and compressed cars, they're not accepting that anymore. They're still in the process of finalizing that ban. The U.S. recycling industry is now looking for alternative countries, like in Southeast Asia, that will take our recycled materials. But it's going slow, finding those alternative places to ship our stuff. Now, some people see a silver lining to this ban from China. First of all, it might encourage consumers here in the States to rethink their consumption and rethink their purchasing choices if they know that recycling a leftover package is going to be more of a challenge now and more expensive. That was a main point of Dr. Belinsky's story. Perhaps people will realize it's better to just not even purchase those items in the first place. Remember the four R's. Reduce, reuse, recycle, reject. Second, consumers might be more careful about not putting contaminated items into recycling bins. Third, this might encourage the further development of our own recycling industry here in the United States. According to officials here in Louisville, there are no immediate plans to stop recycling paper or cardboard items like they are in Lexington. Currently, Louisville's recyclables are going to West Rock Recycling Company in southern part of the city. And this company is still recycling something like 13,000 tons of materials every month. I think that 13,000 ton number is for paper and cardboard mostly. But that's not to say that we don't have a problem with recycling here in Louisville. There was a quote in the Courier-Journal from May 19, 2019, by a Louisville Metro official who said, quote, As with other cities, the economics of recycling paper has recently turned negative. Apparently, whereas Louisville used to actually make money by recycling its paper and cardboard, they now have to pay to get it recycled. We're paying $15 a ton. So with all the budget woes that Louisville Metro government is having right now, it makes you wonder, how long will this be sustainable? that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. 
That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.